You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. As I wrote to all of my colleagues at Walker Nullop yesterday, when we have billionaire investors like Barry Sternlich on the Walker webcast, thousands of people listen in thinking they might hear a tip or a comment that will turn them on to the investment of a lifetime. But as we all know, that rarely happens, albeit Barry's insights on the markets are always fascinating. But my two guests today are experts in human interaction, emotional intelligence, conflict management, and other soft skills that make all the difference in establishing and maintaining corporate culture. And as Amy and Segal will tell us, it is those companies that have professionals who know how to communicate, how to deal with conflict, and have high emotional intelligence that succeed in the long term. So it's actually this discussion that determines where the money is made. So thanks for joining us and let's dive in. Quick bios on my two guests and then we'll go. Amy Gallo is an expert in conflict, communication, and workplace dynamics. She's the author of the Harvard Business Review Guide to Dealing with Conflict and is a contributing editor at the Harvard Business Review. Amy is currently co-host of HBR's Women at Work podcast. She has taught at Brown University and has degrees from both Brown and Yale University. Sigal Barsade is the Joseph Frank Bernstein Professor of Management at the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Barsade is an expert in emotional intelligence, organizational culture, and team dynamics. She received a BA from UCLA and her PhD from the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. So there is so much territory to cover with the two of you, and I am deeply appreciative of having both of you with me. I want to start with disappointment management. Throughout the COVID pandemic, beyond the very real pain that has hit families across the country that have either lost a loved one or dealt with the physical challenges of the virus, along with the financial impact on businesses and individuals, we have all been disappointed by a postponed vacation, a canceled graduation, or lost by one of our candidates in the November 3rd elections. Amy, you recently wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review on disappointment management. I guess I want to start with what's been your greatest personal disappointment during COVID and how'd you deal with it? And then we'll get to the theoretical, but what's been the biggest disappointment for you? Oh, there is a list <laughs> for sure. And my mind, of course, immediately goes to the professional disappointments as someone who speaks in front of live audiences. You know, my entire work for 2020 evaporated in a week in mid-March, and that was terrifying. I was very fortunate that a lot of it came back. But when I, when you ask me the biggest disappointment, I have to say it's been, it was this summer, each summer, my mom is retired and lives by the beach. And each summer, my family of three goes and relocates and, and we live with her, which is just a wonderful multi-generational experience where my daughter gets to spend tons of time with her. I get to spend tons of time with my mom and we weren't able to do that this year. So it was a real point of sadness for everyone my mom, my daughter, me. And really what I tried to focus on was the fact that it was temporary, that this was not going to be permanent. This was not a threat to our relationship or to, you know, our sense of fun or, you know, to my daughter's childhood. This was just a disappointment. And even using that word to frame it has been really, really helpful for me. Sigal, I'll turn to you with the same question. Biggest disappointment during COVID and how'd you deal with it? It's funny, it's the same, uh, it must be a parent theme, um, because for a variety of reasons, we hadn't seen them longer than usual, and so because of COVID, we're now at like a year and a half without seeing my parents and be, not being able to see my husband's mom, who lives alone, and you know, like, that those are, are definitely the disappointments, but it's interesting about disappointments because one of the things, and I'm sure Amy's going to get into this too, that the research literature talks about disappointments is that when you're disappointed, the primary feeling you have is of powerlessness, the feeling, the kind of cognition of missing out, and then 
the behavior that people normally respond to disappointment with is actually turning away from the disappointment and trying to find other things. What's happened, and I think that this is part of what's leading to, to in the States, at minimum, this possible health crisis we're about to have tomorrow, if not today, is that in our desire to turn away and to not miss out, not everybody does what Amy says, which is like, okay, it's temporary. They kind of cognitively reframe. Instead, what they're doing is they're turning away, but by saying, you know what, I'm just not going to think about the disappointment of COVID and I'm going to try to carry on, which can then lead to kind of risky behavior. And one thing I would want to say about that, Willie, is that absolutely disappointment management is huge. But much of what I've been looking at this time period, both personally and professionally, is anxiety management. Because I think one of the biggest things that's happened now in this pandemic is we've all been thrown into this situation of anxiety. We don't know the right things to do. And normal decisions, like when I go to the supermarket, am I safe? Do I let my kids do a sleepover? You know, do you go to the optometrist? I mean, very normal life events. Each one now is an explicit cognitive calculus to something that used to just be natural. And I think the anxiety management is one of the biggest issues in this time period. And Amy, along those lines, when you when you think about the news of the vaccine mm-hmm. that came out two weeks ago, how much does the dynamic shift? Because I think, you know, I'm going back to comments that both you and Seagal made as it relates to missed family events sort of in the summertime where we didn't know if this was going to be a year or five years or ever for that matter. And now all of a sudden we know we have a vaccine that's come in. What can we take from that as it relates to the next time we're all confronted with a disappointing situation as it relates to trying to look beyond the here and now and look to the future? Yeah, there's two sides to this. One, knowing that there is an end in sight, however we want to define the end of this virus. So I think we don't all know what that will look like. But with the vaccine on the horizon, that reappraisal I was talking about of, well, this is temporary. I'll be able to do this next summer or th- next Thanksgiving is going to look entirely different is much easier, right? Because it, it, it is it feels much more of a certainty. The challenge is the benefit of negative emotions, whether it's disappointment, anxiety, anger, is that they point out what's the difference between what we want and what we're getting, which motivates us to take action. So, and that's when those emotions can be good, right? Guilt isn't a useful emotion unless it causes you to do something differently about the current situation or about a future situation, right? Same, same with, you know, disappointment. Like if you're bracing for a disappointment, if there's something in your control, as Seagal was alluding to, that you can do differently, that's great. Stay home, wear a mask, whatever it is that can help you prevent the, the disappointment from coming is good. The problem with the vaccine on the horizon is I think some people think, well, it's almost here. I can let down my guard. I don't have to be disappointed because it's almost here. So some of us can get sick and then the vaccine will be okay. You know, And I, so I think there's a there's two sides to it that these negative emotions brought about by the pandemic can be refocused on us taking action on things that we can control. But if we don't feel motivated to take those actions, we end up either wallowing in um, negative emotion or we let let our guard down, which can be really dangerous. I'd love to actually add to that because the problem is people are sick of being disappointed. And that the actions to deal with disappointment are different than the actions you're going to take for the anxiety. And ultimately, the best action that most people can take right now is inaction. And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but the German government, not always known for its amazing sense of humor, but in this case, put out this incredible video where they had this guy in a, like a many years from now saying, I remember the winter of 2020. And it was, you know, and you, you, it was so hard and, you know, they have the crescendoing music in the back and almost like warlike scenes and, and like, and we were called on for action and we did. And then what we did was, and there's this big crescendo, it's like absolutely nothing. <laughs> we laid on our couches, we drank beer, 
we didn't move, you know. And the thing is that what's so challenging in this time period right now is that the best action for a while is not doing the things that we're disappointed about not doing. And that's such a complex psychological dynamic. And I think that that's why, frankly, we're seeing airports at the bursting today in the worst of the pandemic that we have seen since the beginning. And and I think it, it helps to make the inexplicable explicable, but people have to, per what Amy said, like, this is not the time to let your guard down. Yeah. As someone said to me, don't be the person who gets the virus two weeks before you get the vaccine. In other words, you know, it's almost here. Hang on. Amy, behind disappointment is typically some type of conflict. Your fiance wanted to hold a small wedding last summer and you wanted to wait till next summer to do the full Monty. You don't really think the virus is a major threat to your kids, yet your school, kid school keeps getting shut down and you feel like zapping off a email to the headmaster saying, why do you keep shutting this thing down? You wrote the HBR guide to dealing with conflict. Let's start with this question. Is conflict always a bad thing? Absolutely not. Those conflicts that you're describing, Lily, are so interesting because I I remember April and May as these like lovely time periods where we're all at home. There was no question about what you would do and what you wouldn't do, who would make what call because it was clear we were supposed to stay home. And so there wasn't that social friction of, is it okay to travel for Thanksgiving? Is it okay to wear my mask? Right? So this, we are at this really interesting time period where the rules aren't clear and we are constantly having conflict, not only with people we might run into at the grocery store, but with our very closest family members and friends. Now, the good thing is conflicts can be very positive if they are geared toward, especially in the work context, for example, getting better work outcomes, have innovation, right? There's lots of things that if you and another person don't see eye to eye and you have to hash it out, um, you have to share your assumptions that you've made, you can produce better work as a result. I mean, if you think about it, teams in which there is zero conflict are probably not creating the best work. They're not creating new ideas, Things are probably just going along smoothly and fine, but often what we see is what Patrick Lencioni, who wrote The Five Dysfunctions of Teams, calls artificial harmony, where we act as if we're getting along, but there's all this underlying resentment or disagreement, or people use gossip or back channels to actually express those disagreements. So there are a lot of benefits. And one of the things when you think about the personal conflicts, like the wedding conflict you mentioned, is it allows us to clarify and articulate our values. One of the things if you handle conflict productively is that you're going to have to get to the underlying assumptions that you are thinking and are making as the other person is going to have to, too. And that can be really clarifying for a relationship or for you personally, you know, as an individual. Sigal, will you will you comment on what Amy just said as it relates to conflict creating creativity, if you will, in the work environment and that that friction is actually very productive to, if you will, driving and pushing at a point to try and figure out where you are. And without that, we in the corporate world are are, are missing sort of a very important element to creativity and moving organizations forward. Yeah. So basically what the research literature shows about conflict is that we tend to think of conflict very monolithically but that actually there are different types of conflict. And normally when we talk about conflict, the type of conflict we're thinking about is something called relationship conflict, which has, it's personal, it has to do with each other. There's also status conflict when we're jockeying for status, there's process conflict, how we're gonna do stuff. And then there's task conflict. And what work primarily done by Eddie Jenner and her colleagues has shown is that conflict that is really useful, for example, for creativity and innovation, and actually she has a wonderful article on innovative project teams. And what she actually, they show there is that teams that had greater task conflict, like should we do this design? Should we do that design? Those are actually the teams that were more effective and productive. And the teams that had high relationship conflict really tanked. But there's a problem. And this comes out of my work on emotions, which is pretty reliably meta-analyses, which means like studies of studies will show that one of the strongest findings is that actually positive emotions 
lead to the greatest creativity. And in fact, I have a study with Teresa Mobley actually at Harvard that we and our other colleagues showed that over time on innovative project teams, day one positive affect predicted day two and day three creativity and innovation. So this is the rub. If you're doing task conflict, then it's wonderful. And it actually, good task conflict in a safe team can actually lead to positive emotions. But the other thing we know is that task conflict very often slips into relationship conflict. And then you get negative emotions and they absolutely kill productivity. So as managers and leaders, you have this really challenging task of you want to keep the task conflict up. You don't want what Amy talked about, you know, the the artificial niceness. You want the task conflict, but you got to keep it from going into relationship conflict because otherwise it will kill the team and it will kill your creativity. So say, okay, I'm not going to avoid the conflict because as you just said, conflict, not only is it needed, it's also in many instances beneficial. So I haven't just sort of said, you know, I'm just not going to deal with that and I'm going to let whatever issue that's been bugging me or that isn't making us productive sit out there and I'm going to go do it. If someone decides to address the conflict directly, can you outline a couple steps that we all ought to take as we kind of approach that conversation with somebody that, first of all, I know personally, I hate it when I know that I've got a sticky conversation coming up with somebody and I want to do everything I can to sort of get myself mentally prepared to deal with however he or she is going to react to the feedback I give them or the issue that's bothering me. So how does somebody walk through the steps to get yourself prepared for that conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things is, you know, Willie mentioned that like I'm dreading this conversation when you're dreading a conversation and you show up to that conversation, the other person usually picks up on the fact that you do not want to be having the conversation. So you're immediately sending signals of this is uncomfortable or I don't, oftentimes that even gets interpreted as I don't like you, right? And so one of the best things you can do is to really check your mindset before going into the conversation. And rather than dread or discomfort? Is there something you're actually curious about? Is there something you want to learn from this conversation that you don't know? You know, and it can't be, I'm curious why this person is acting like a jerk. Like that's not, again, you're going to bring that negative energy to the end to the conversation, but what don't you know about the situation? What, what assumptions have you made that might be wrong? I mean, I think one of the best frameworks to go into or frame of mind rather to go into the conversation is where might I be wrong, right? Because that that immediately assumes you have something to learn from the other person. I also find it personally helpful to try to get myself unhooked from the story that I've been telling myself about the conflict. Because we often interpret a conflict as a threat, a threat to resources, a threat to our identity, a threat to our ego or to the project we're working on. And when we ha- have that sense of threat, we try to make a story that that makes sense of that. And the story is often biased toward you and your interpretation of events and not very generous to the other person or might be really detrimental to you, right? You might be beating yourself up over this when you don't need to. So not only try to think of through what's going on here for me, what's going on for the other person, what might their goal be, what are they trying to achieve here, but to ask yourself what else could be a reasonable explanation for this potential conflict. Why else might this be happening? And I think coming up with several different stories that are rational, logical, is a good way to get you sort of unhooked or unwedded to your interpretation of the events, because chances are you're not seeing it absolutely clearly. And there are multiple perspectives. You also want to think through how are you going to have the conversation? What are the messages you want to make sure the other person hears? What questions do you want to ask the other person? And you also want to make sure, because we're sort of projecting a lot of discomfort about this, we also want to make sure we choose the right time and the right place to have it. Oftentimes we think, well, I'll just, I'll just tack this on to the end of that other meeting we'll have. We'll just have that, it'll go quickly that way and then it'll be over. But oftentimes we need to leave more space and time because these things can get tricky and and you want to make sure that you're navigating it with space, with the ability to hear what the other person has to say, make sure your message has been heard. The other thing is that space sometimes is several conversations. So don't think this is going to be one and done, right? That you're going to just have a quick 15-minute conversation. You're going to resolve it. Great if that works, but be open to the fact 
that you might have an initial conversation. It might not go that well, or it might go in a different direction than you expected. And then you're going to need to come back to it. And sometimes you have to come back to it multiple times and talk about disappointment. When I'm dreading a difficult conversation and it's not done in the the hour I set aside, it's really makes me, (laughs) makes me upset. So knowing the expectation that this could take several times for us to get through it. And, you know, we may need to bring in other people or another information, just going in with as few sort of wedded expectations as possible, I think is a really, it's really right. The right mindset. So Sigal, Amy talks about sort of checking your own mindset and then also thinking about the situation from your counterparty's perspective and trying to understand why he or she is acting the way that they are. That sounds a lot to me like emotional intelligence. Uh, you're an expert in emotional intelligence. How, of all the things that Amy just talked through, what's how do we get ourselves from an EQ standpoint? I, I think about getting ready for a presentation. I'm going to go do all the homework I can on my client. On I'm going to have all my numbers right. That's IQ. I'm, I'm going into that meeting trying to say I'm as smart as you're going to find on this issue. Now we're talking about EQ. What are, what are some of the things that we can do to, if you will, enhance our EQ before we head into one of those kinds types of conversations? Well, actually, it's so funny. Also, as you say, as, as Amy was speaking, I was like, wow, this is like just like a lot of it's like, it's like a big meta emotional intelligence, you know, primer <laughs> because it hits on so many pieces. And actually, Willie, your, your example about pre- prepping for the meeting, it's, it's actually identically the example I give when I teach emotional intelligence. I'm like, look, you would never go into a meeting with your PowerPoint. So you know what? I'm going to wing the numbers. I mean, I'm really experienced. I, I can answer questions in real time really well. I'm just going to wait. Like that'd be crazy, right? But we do it all the time as it relates to the interpersonal aspect of the interactions we're having. And so I think that, I mean, almost every step of what Amy outlined, but one thing I would pick up on in terms of perspective taking, for example, is so emotional intelligence has three components to it. The first is your ability to read other people's emotions and express yours effectively. So like Amy's point about And I think it's so interesting because it's about like, well, how are you coming across? Because if you're coming across like tense and, you know, that's already going to set the stage. And we'll talk later also why physiologically it's going to set the stage. But also your ability to read other people's emotions is going to help you get their perspective because you can tell like which direction the conversation is going in. The second step of emotional intelligence is your ability to understand other people's emotions. Your ability to understand, oh, you know, if I'm unfair, they're going to get angry. Or if I seem distant, they're going to be distant. And perspective taking is probably the very best way we have in to understand other people's emotions. And Amy outlined, I don't have to repeat, I mean, she outlined beautifully the kind of things that you would do to help you really get other people's perspective. Because what we tend to do is we tend to climb something called the ladder of inference which is when we see a behavior, let's say we're, and this has been such a challenge in the virtual time, we're on Zoom, you're looking away, and I assume that you're looking away because you're actually uninterested. And then I'm like, oh, he's uninterested. And then I make a belief about that. He's not a good team player. And then I make a conclusion about that. Well, he, you know, he's not somebody I want to work with. And then you kind of fly up that ladder without going back to the data and talking about the data. People have conflict at the conclusion level, but they should be having conflict at the data level. And then finally, there's emotional regulation, which is your ability to change your own emotions. Let's say you get mad at something that's going on. You need to be able to regulate yourself so you can keep that conversation going and also regulate the emotion of the other people. But the probably the most practical tip I can give everybody listening right now, whatever you do, Do not do this over email or text. There is absolutely no way you could handle the subtlety and the information. And it's like driving with a blindfold. It's very dangerous and not recommended. So that is probably the most practical thing. And people want to do it. They want to do it by email and text because, and you know, when you do this, right, you shoot this email, you're like, well, maybe they won't view it as conflictual that I'm asking them to work another 20 hours, pay them nothing more and do it over the holidays. But (laughs) You know, it doesn't work. 
I hear people say, well, I'm better at articulating myself in writing, right? So that it's going to be, but articulating yourself is not a conversation. And I think we know from lots of research that you cannot convey emotional nuance in an email the same way you can with voice or with, you know, body language. And I like to say, you can use all the emojis in the world, but you are not going to say the same thing you would say with your facial expressions. So Amy, one of the things that you advise people to do is to look for patterns. And I went and did something called the process at the Hoffman Institute out in California a number of years ago, which basically trains you to think back on your own patterns and patterns that you developed as a kid in trying to what they call find negative love from your parents. But you build up these Habits that in many instances are very good. They're what make you who you are. And they're also in some instances bad that you've picked up some habit that got you that negative love from your parent by playing into either being passive aggressive or by uh, trying to keep up with the Joneses or whatever that piece to your personality that might strike someone wrong in the office. And one of the keys that you talk about is identifying patterns in others as you're dealing with conflict. Mm -hmm. Can you give some tips on pattern identification and how to keep those in mind as you run through these issues? Yeah. I mean, one of the patterns I think you really want to identify for yourself before even thinking about the other person is how do you typically handle conflict? So when you are in a stressful situation and and what we call the stress response, right? What is your default reaction? And I'll, I'll tell you, there's a chapter in my book about this, and it was the chapter I was most hesitant about because I do realize it's an oversimplification of what we know in terms of how people react, but it's the chapter people most often talk to me about, which is that the distinction is your is your default reaction to avoid. So when something comes up, are you really quickly focused on the relationship and whether, you know, whether you're going to uh, lose that relationship, whether there's going to be a disruption of the harmony in your relationship? And you therefore want to, in the fight or flight model, do you want to flee, right? Or are you someone who leans in? Are you someone who really actively wants to engage in that conflict and maybe even stirs up conflict because that feels comfortable to you? That's that's what you're used to. And that would be the, that's the fight piece of the fight or the flight. And I think you want to know what is, how is it that you tend to react, right? How is it that you tend to react when you are under that stress of a conflict. Now, of course, it's a spectrum. It's not going to be the same in every interaction, but knowing what your default is helps you understand, well, you know, the idea that I just want to send an email and get out of this, this is part of my default reaction to avoid conflict. So maybe I should think more closely about what's the right response here, because neither of those responses are good or bad necessarily, depending on the conflict and depending on the situation. You know, at the same time, you want to look for those patterns in others too. Is this someone, if someone hasn't responded to your email, you know, who generally does is pretty responsive, like what's going on there? Is this a separation from what they typically do, an anomaly, or is this something that you've seen that happens when conflicts, you know, this person's usually responsive, but then when conflict comes up, they just disappear, right? And that can help you so you're not building stories, but you have to, again, be careful The pattern recognition is helpful if you use it in a productive way. But if you tell yourself, Willie's a passive aggressive jerk every time, you know, like that's not going to help you. You really want to look for patterns that help you approach it in a positive way of how can I sort of solve this problem? How can we together solve this problem that we're facing? Sigal, anything you want to add to Amy's comments there as it relates to identifying patterns and sort of EQ as you deal with sticky situations? It got me thinking a lot about something called attribution theory, which is that we are continuously trying to make sense of our world through the attributions that we make. And that part of attribution theory, the pattern part, is saying, okay, well, that person was a jerk to me, but you know what? They're a jerk to everybody. Or, you know, they're never a jerk to anybody or me, and now they're being a jerk. Something must be really wrong. And I think, though, the problem with these attributions is that we have something called the cynical attribution error, which is we tend, unfortunately, to attribute negative motives and intent to people more than we should. I have a study that showed that when somebody does something like that turns out bad for you, you are more likely to blame them than when somebody does something nice for you 
than you are to give them credit for it. When somebody does that something nice for you, you're more likely to say, oh, they want something back or, you know, that it was easy for them. But when something turns out badly, it's like they are a terrible person. And so, again, these are almost like our cognitive biases that the best way is to do what the folks who are listening now is you, you hear about them, you learn about them and you try to avoid them. Well, the same thing with the attribution, when you when you are interpreting something, a mistake someone else has made, it's usually because of them, right? You you believe they made the mistake. When you make a mistake, you think about the circumstances, right? It's the intention versus you assign them a lot of intention, whereas for you, it's the intention. You, you're much more generous in your yeah. interpretation of your own intentions. And if we would just be as generous with other people as we are with ourselves in terms of the interpretation, all of our lives would be a lot more pleasant, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And Amy, when dealing with a conflict, and then I want to move on to a bunch of the work that Sigal has done as it relates to corporate culture and how to spread positive corporate culture. But on the conflict side of things, you mentioned sort of the four drivers of conflict in in the work environment. And, you know, one of them is on task. So if I disagree with you on how we get to a certain task accomplished, that drives conflict. There's process where if I don't think getting that task done that way is the right way to do it, I'm going to argue with you over process. Then there's status where you might be telling me what what the process is supposed to be, but I don't think that you have the right to tell me how to do it. Those three things seem to be, A, in some instances, they're petty, but we know they always happen. And B, you can kind of get through them. But your fourth one is personality. It's just relationships. It's, I just don't like Amy. How do we deal with, I just don't like Amy? Yeah. Well, and this is what Seagal was talking about earlier about the different types, right? The task process can be really productive. Relationship conflicts rarely have any positive benefits because, as Seagal said, they generate these negative emotions. And I can tell you, for me, what I notice, and these are some of the hardest conflicts in my experience to resolve because they do feel for a lot of people, they feel innate, right? Like I just, we have a personality difference or we, you know, we just will never get along, right? Like they just feel so personal and so unmovable. And a couple of things I, I try to tell myself when I'm dealing with someone who is with whom I have a personality conflict, one of which is that I can only control what I can control. So I can't change the fact that this person behaves that way or reacts this, you know, negatively every time we bring this topic up. But what I can control is my reaction to that. And my reaction to that is often feeding the negative dynamic between us. So there's actually some really great work done by a woman named Jen Goldman Wetzler that looks at, can you take a pattern breaking action that will actually change the dynamic between you. So if you have an ongoing relationship conflict with someone where you do one thing, they do the other, it goes back and forth, back and forth, right? Think, for example, of you propose a new idea and that other person says, well, we've already tried that, right? Like that's a classic, you know, what feels like a, a relationship conflict. It's like that person's just a pessimist and I'm an optimist. I'm innovative. They're stuck in their ways, right? It just, it feels very personal. So is there a way you can take an action that would change that dynamic? So could you be the one who says, no, this would never work? Like, would that help take you out of that polarization so that person actually, it maybe is forced to take a different perspective? You know, I think that one of the mistakes we make is that we, if we just pointed out to people all of their negative attributes, obviously they would want to change. And that's just not true. <laughs> I can tell you that from lots of personal relationship, I'm showing someone their, their faults does not necessarily motivate them to change. So really, again, trying to change your, your reaction to it. And truthfully, one of the things that really helps me at the end of the day is saying to myself is that this person's punishment for this negative you know, behavior or this personality trait that's really irritating and bothering or, or hindering to our work is that they have to wake up as themselves every single day and I get to wake up as me. And that's great. And really trying to sort of separate yourself from trying to solve them and rather just focus on what I can bring to this situation is my positive attitude, my distance from them because I don't have to necessarily, I may have to work with them, but I don't have to get along with them necessarily. And really just some real, 
you know, sort of again, reappraisal of this does not have to define my work experience. This does not have to define our team's experience. I can still continue to live my values and live what I believe in these interactions, even if this person is behaving the way they are. So let me take it out of the work context for a second and take it down to the family context that many of us will face tomorrow. And it was one of the things that we put on the invite to this discussion, which is that Aunt Sally voted for Biden and Uncle Joe voted for Donald Trump. And you're either with Aunt Sally or or Uncle Joe and you're sitting around the table. You're not going to change them. And someone might make a comment and go to whichever side of the extreme you want. How do we deal with that? I, I, I honestly last in 2017 and 2018, I would constantly hear anecdotes of family members who sort of moved from one side of the table to the other side of the table. You know, uh, somebody who'd been a card-carrying member of the Democratic Party who now is supporting Donald Trump and somebody who was a card-carrying member of the Republican Party now saying, I can't believe what Trump's doing. All of this sort of changing seats. How do you deal with this? Because it's not like going into the office, dealing with someone from a conflict standpoint and then saying, okay, it's all good and great. These are issues that A, run very deep, And B, as you just said, we're not going to change that person and their beliefs. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. And I think you have to ask yourself, what is your goal here? Because is this, you know, are you seeing Aunt Sally once a year at Thanksgiving and you just need to get through the dinner and move on with your life, right? Or is this someone who you need to see regularly, who is influencing other people in your family with their viewpoint? Like, what is it you actually want to achieve? And that will really determine how you choose to interact. I mean, changing the subject is a really great tactic, right? There's no reason you have to talk about politics, especially if you know it's going to result in a fight. And you can say, we've talked about this before. We don't see eye to eye. You know, let's talk about the kids. Let's talk about your work. Let's talk about anything. You know, it's fine to not, you don't have to engage in that conversation if your goal isn't to have an ongoing relationship with Aunt Sally. And I'll tell you, I have people in my life with whom I have relationships where I know we don't see eye to eye. The the challenge really becomes, and where I get concerned, is that some of these political perspectives for certain people feel really dehumanizing. And so to tell someone to empathize or to engage in a conversation in which their, their sense of self is threatened, you know, I think about my sister-in-law who who married a, a black Muslim man and has, you know, black Muslim children. She has an aunt on her side of the family who is incredibly anti-Muslim. And she says, you know, for my mom to tell me to be empathetic to this aunt, it feels dehumanizing to me. And I, and I have to say, I see that perspective. So again, it's sort of deciding what is it you want to achieve? Be realistic about that. I don't know if you're going to change Aunt Sally's perspective, as you said, Willie, be realistic about what is it you want? What can you engage in in a way that feels true to your values, true to your sense of self? Also, you know, one of your values may be spending time with family. So maybe you need to prioritize that value in that moment rather than your your value around fairness and equity, which someone else might not feel is as important. So it's really deciding for that specific situation And remember, letting people say things that you don't agree with, that doesn't have to be the end of the world. I think sometimes we think, well, if someone says something, I have to speak up. And certainly if someone is feeling threatened or someone is unsafe, absolutely, you need need to speak up. And oftentimes in the work context, you have an obligation. But sometimes you can just let Uncle Joe or whoever go on about their politics and just say, interesting, okay, can you pass the gravy? Yeah, I I was going to just say, they are family after all. We have to say something, right? You know, <laughs> we've been around them our entire lives. We we can't let them get away with saying that. I've been listening to that my entire life. Yeah. Well, um, I, I will say, I do want to point out, though, there is, you know, when people do change their mind, it is often because of something that happened to them with someone close to them. So there is, if you believe, like, there is an opportunity to change people's perspective. And, and very likely they might do that because of an experience they have with you if you are a close family member. So I wouldn't say avoid politics altogether, but if the history is these political discussions cause huge ruptures in your family and that's not what you want, yeah, change the subject. 
So, Sigal, we're talking a little bit here about, to some degree, emotional norms. You know, we were talking about an emotional norm around a a Thanksgiving table tomorrow, but there's also emotional norms inside the corporate environment. And uh, we're all now in this virtual corporate environment and virtual personal environment in the sense that many of us aren't going to be seeing family members tomorrow. We're going to be doing a Zoom call for our Thanksgiving conversation. Are there emotional norms in the virtual world and are they any different from emotional norms in the physical office? Yeah. So when we talk about organizational culture, if I was to say to you organizational culture, you know, most people know what that is. And usually what they focus on for organizational culture is what I call cognitive culture, which are norms and values around how you should think at work and when the boss isn't around. But what my colleagues and I have been doing a lot of research about in the in the, the past 10 years or so are these is emotional culture, these emotional norms, which are norms and values around what emotions should you be expressing and what are those that you're better off not expressing. And, and again, Amy's example around the dinner table shows some of that, right? Because you might be in a family that actually has the norm of we do not show strong emotions ever. And so you're going to, you know, you're going to have a very different conversation with a family that's like, yes, and we hash everything out and we allow, we, we are, we, we don't just allow anger. We have a culture of anger and, and that's considered more acceptable. And the reason that this winds up being so important is that we are finding that this emotional culture predicts as well, and sometimes even better than these cognitive norms we spend so much time with. But what has happened in the virtual setting is that one of the downsides of the virtual setting is that we really get our shared affective experiences dampened because as much as, I mean, again, video is, a you know, it's better than email and it's better than phone, but it doesn't allow for as much of the processes that happen in shared emotion. And one of the biggest processes that happens in shared emotion is actually the process of emotional contagion, that we literally catch emotions from one another automatically. It's a largely automatic process, and it's due to behavioral mimicry, and then we actually start to feel the emotions. The problem with these cameras that we're dealing with is that much of that happens in the nonverbal, and in the virtual environment, as we talked about before, there's, there can be a lot of misunderstanding about what's going on. It's harder to read people. And the automaticity is also really, really a problem. And so actually, you know, a lot of the things I'm advising companies right now is that they have to become much more explicit about these norms. They have to talk about how are we going to engage? How are we going to argue? If I go back to your first topic about conflict, what kind of emotions do we want to show? And the thing about this, and I'd be curious with your listeners, is that you know we're moving more and more to understanding that one, one of my biggest things is, if you get nothing else out of it, is that emotions are not noise in our interactions. They are data. And they are data about not only how people feel, but how they think and what how they're going to behave. And if you're not paying attention to people's emotions, you're playing with one hand tied behind your back. I mean, I'm not saying don't prep for that meeting cognitively, but you got to prep for it emotionally as well. And so virtually, you've got to be even clearer about that, even if that might make some people uncomfortable. I mean, I'm sure there's some people listening to this saying, are you kidding? I barely talk about emotions to my family. I'm not going to talk about them at work, you know, but and I'm not saying you have to like overshare. But you have to get this collective regulation. What kind of team are we? Are we a team that's enthusiastic, positive, hopeful, you know, whatever you think is going to make you most effective in your environment? And then what kind of emotions are we going to try to avoid? But if they happen, let's pay attention to what they're telling us. So how can we do that? Your comment there about emotions not being noise, but being data is a fascinating and fantastic frame. It's something that quite honestly, I think many business leaders would sit there. You in one of your previous webcasts that I listened to talked about a a regional bank CEO that you interviewed and you sort of said, tell me about the emotional culture inside your bank. And he sort of looked at you with this blank stare and said, there's no place for emotions inside of our bank, Um, which I thought was hysterical. But so many 
managers and leaders, if you said emotions are data and not noise, all of a sudden say, well, I know I need to be good on data. Like data is what drives my business. Everyone's headed towards data. Everyone's saying, can I get machine learning and AI to run my business? How can we create emotional databases as managers and leaders that make us successful at running our organizations? So uh, the first thing is you got to acknowledge that that's what they are and that because it's happening both individually and collectively, but employees tend to pay attention to what their managers are paying attention to and to their, what their leaders are paying attention to. And so it so much of the emotions as data side, it starts with the leader. And it starts with the leader's like view that, oh, wait, this matters. And I'm going to show people that this matters through my behavior. So they role model it. They, they say, wow, you know, hey, you know, Willie, you, you're looking a little distracted. Or they share, for example, in this time period, one of the things to really help people feel more connected in the virtual world is that leaders are becoming a little bit more vulnerable about saying how they feel about what's going on. And in fact, in that vein, Willie, I have to say I was left with the question from the beginning, which is you asked us about what our biggest disappointment was. I was curious about what your biggest disappointment was. Yeah, so... Um... <laughs> I think on both sides of it, it was sort of disappointment and, a, and an anxiety piece. And, and that just went to, after the election was over, I was perfectly fine with the legal process taking place to make sure that the vote count was done well. But when we moved beyond that into where I really sensed that we could be headed towards some type of civil unrest, I yeah. got very anxious about that. And I got very upset and disappointed about our society getting to a point where civil unrest might start to crop up. And so it was kind of that combination of, I wasn't disappointed that the legal process took its time and it needed yeah. to, but once the legal process had sort of done its thing, the idea of kind of challenging the results on nothing other than just, I don't like them seemed to be pushing us in an area that caused at least for me, this latent anxiety and sort of everything that I was doing because I was really afraid that we might start to see civil unrest across the country that would obviously cause further problems. Yeah. And again, you know, you have to think about the boundary and the lines between you and your employees, but I think being open and, and being able to share more of that is something that really helps to role model it. And then what I would say, and, you know, we're seeing this so much more now is companies need to recognize that emotional intelligence matters. And, you know, I do a ton of work and training for companies around emotional intelligence. And when I started this work many years ago, there was less of it. And now companies are like, oh, yeah, our people need to know what emotional intelligence is. And, and then you teach the skill sets, you know, and a lot of things that Amy's been talking about. And the funniest thing is that the hardest part about change, we, we know people can change their emotional intelligence, but the the most important part of it is not the training. The training's pretty easy. We're not trying to turn everybody into Gandhi, all right? This is just to kind of get better. What actually the hard part is the motivation. You're only going to get better if you want to. And that's where the culture also comes in. Because I've seen cultures that say, yes, we care about emotional intelligence and this matters to us. And then who gets promoted? The people who are exercising none of it who are stomping on everyone else and bringing those resources into the organization. Now, that's a choice that the organization makes, but don't say that you're about emotional intelligence. So you want to reward the people who are behaving in these ways that make everybody more effective. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I see this the same Sigal in my work where people will want, they'll say, you know, after training or after work, that this is so helpful. I'm not sure I'm going to do any of it, right? Because, because as you said, there's no, there's no motivation. And I think anytime you send a notice about someone being promoted or you make a decision to highlight a team's work, don't just highlight the results. Right. Highlight the behaviors, the emotions, everything they used to do that and, and really call out emotional intelligence skills as a reason that they were able to have that success. And as a reason they're being being recognized because that is going to, as Sigal said, give people the motivation to follow through on many of these things, which we instinctively know are helpful to ourselves and to others. But oftentimes we just, because of that myth that emotions are noise and not data, we just dismiss. Oh, I'm sorry. Just one last thing. One of the strongest things I do with, with groups is I actually have them. And this is something that any of you can do with your people back in the office 
is I actually have them um, think about a, the most emotionally intelligent thing they've ever seen at work and what was the business outcome in the least and what was the business outcome. And when you start sharing those stories, you see that EI is not a nice to have. It is an absolute must have for successful performance. And so if you can call that out, that's very helpful. Yeah. There are just two quick things that I would add from the Walker and Dallant perspective that kind of pull together a lot of what you've both talked about. We've been wildly productive during COVID as it relates to processing loans. And as a result of just producing a lot of business, we haven't had a whole lot of conflict, if you will. We get the loans done, we underwrite them, and sure, there's, there are little conflicts that happen on the side. But as far as an organization, there hasn't been a lot of that. And then we got to discussing, debating, and putting together a five-year strategic plan. And all of a sudden on Zoom calls, we had real conflict and we had people saying, no, we ought to go left, we ought to go right. And that's where the creativity happens. It also was somewhat of a challenge to try and manage that conflict that was appearing online. So I can clearly see what both of you talk about as it relates to the processing is fine, but unless you have the conflict to figure out from a creativity and a growth standpoint, you're not going to get there. The one other thing, though, that I think is really interesting, Sigal, to your point, is that we had an all-company meeting last week, and we had 950 people on a big Zoom call. And you'd think that that was static and that people couldn't get a sense from an emotional standpoint. But because we had a chat room going up the entire time where when someone won an award, people would dive in and say, congratulations, Donna. And when somebody was talked about some new thing saying, you crushed your presentation. And by having that ongoing dialogue, rather than having 950 people sitting in a big conference room in Dallas, Texas, like we did last year, where you're presenting and yes, you might get an applause afterwards and people might talk afterwards. We got kind of real-time emotional interaction Mm -hmm. amongst our team, which was a wildly valuable thing as far as people kind of diving in and making their comments about what they were seeing and feeling. Mm -hmm. So one of the benefits of, of Zoom, I mean, chat is one of the best things ever because, and it gives you what's in everybody's head immediately and people can feed off of it. And so I see that as a silver lining. I will still bet you if I had to run the emotion numbers on it, that if you get 950 people in that room with the emotional contagion, you've got to seed it a little bit, right? Like, I mean, if everybody's, yeah, if everybody's like this, no, that could be really deadly. But if you seed it a little bit, music is very helpful. The energy that will come out of those 950 people rooting for it. And it should not be just a little polite clap. I mean, it should be, is going to make people collectively feel more emotion, even as wonderful as the chat function is. Believe me, when and if we can get back together, we will get back together. <laughs> so trust me, we're not going virtual forever. Um, we, we, we are right at the bottom of the hour. And so I told you we'd start on time and we'd finish on time. The, the insights from both of you are just so appreciated and so exceptional. Amy and Sigal, thank you both so much. Happy Thanksgiving to you both and your families and to everybody who joined us today on a very quiet day pre-Thanksgiving. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, Wish everyone a very happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see everyone on the webcast next week. Thanks very much. 